Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. Uh, we're here with Rock Wilcox. It's August 2nd, 2022. We're at Casa S in Dayton. Rock, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, the first question to get you started is why wine? That's a fun question, which is a bit mysterious to me, actually, because I can remember being like a wee little lad, five, six years old, and you would see wine on a television show. And I was always fascinated by this mysterious stuff that comes from around the world and everywhere, and I'm like, it always intrigued me. Well, obviously wasn't old enough to drink or understand it, but from the very beginning, I was fascinated by it. So when I got to college and finally, you know, had an idea that I'd go down to the liquor store, come back with wine. And it's just the wine bug started at, you know, very, very early. Then eventually after college, I moved to San Francisco and was very heavily involved in the food and wine scene there for couple of decades that I lived there and we eventually got to the point where I said you know I think I wouldn't mind taking this to the next level maybe I went a little overboard but so we moved up here bought this place which had a vineyard it had just been planted that spring and you know like what are you going to do you got grapes so set up a winery and started making wine I didn't come from the industry I didn't grow up in a wine family in a wine area it just it always fascinated me, and I'm somewhat of a person who likes to do things. You know, whether it's like grab a welder and start welding, or set up a machine shop, or make wine, or play the piano, self-taught. I like trying things, and, and I don't care if I fail. I just like to try things. And so here we are today, you know, <laughs> making wine in the middle of the Willamette Valley, and, you know, why I was gravitated to that when I was so young, I can't really tell you. That's a mystery, but it has always been there. So let's back up a little bit and talk about life before you got here to the Lambert Valley. Tell us about where you were born and raised and kind of your path out of, after school. So I grew up in a very small town in the backwoods of Maine, not terribly unlike some of the small towns you would see here. And interestingly enough, same degrees 45 degrees north. Mm -hmm. So I, I may have started there and wound up there just safely 3,000 miles away <laughs> from me. Um, little town called Fayette, you know, very rural, had no friends because there was nobody around. It's not that I was that unlikable. <laughs> um, and so as a very young age, I was very independent. You learn to, you learn to sort of entertain yourself. You learn to do things for yourself. Grew up. Finally went to college uh, in Maine, got a degree in Hoham uh, Physics and Engineering, um, worked for a little bit on a PhD in nuclear physics, decided that was not for me, uh, set sail for, when I say sail, but it was a plane actually, for San Francisco, mm -hmm. Bay Area, and settled down there, eventually got into high tech and mm -hmm. did tech work. Surprise, surprise, there's a lot of that in the wine industry. And for 23 years, lived there in San Francisco as a tech person, but my main hobby was, you know, buying and consuming wine and going out to food, because I didn't have a car, I didn't go skiing, I didn't have lots of other high expensive hobbies, so food and wine was my hobby. Uh, and eventually we moved up here. So tell me about your works. What were some of the sort of the places you worked, things you did, hi, kind of highlights of that part of your career? <laughs> yeah, and has nothing to do with wine. Um, <laughs> I have been for 27 years, and I still do. I currently still work in, in the high-tech industry um, part-time, which is thankful. The employer allows me to flex my hours so that I can kind of work a little bit for them and a little bit for myself. But I build corporate uh, and corporate financial and business software, large enterprise software for managing businesses, finance, that kind of stuff. Never built any fun software like video games or anything cool. And it's just very boring business software. But 
the real great plus of that is that's where the money is, mm -hmm. literally where the money is in finance software. So it's been a very stable thing. It allowed just to afford this mm -hmm. uh, escape in life. So, and I'm, I'm much older than I look. But that's how I've achieved it. But yeah, so, um, you know, that's where it comes from. I won't name, name the companies because they're totally ungermane to anything we're doing here, but it's just corporate financial software. How did, I'm just curious before we move on, how did that become your path? How did you find yourself in that niche? Well, after, you know, after college, having a very technical engineering and math degree, um, the software industry was where the jobs were in San Francisco in 1993. And specifically, even though I wasn't trained as a software engineer, what I could bring to the table that the engineers weren't trained in was the discipline around business modeling, uh, mathematics, algorithms, the stuff that they train you as a physicist to do. And I would bring that discipline to the software teams and help them with those algorithms and calculations on the back end. Usually they did the UIs and front ends and interaction and user experience kinds of work, but I would be buried in the back of the system somewhere and work on the math. But that became a great partnership for 23 years where I focused on what I did best and mm -hmm. worked with software teams to do what they do best. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you know, wine had held a fascination for you from early in life. So tell me about as you came of age and started to, started to consume more wine, what did you find exciting about the, the product once you finally got to kind of experience it? It was always, for me, the fascination. And you know, it actually started a little before I came of age, but we won't, we won't wink to that too much. Um, always said the, the pursuit of the sort of geography and culture, because you know, wine isn't just fermented juice in a bottle. It, there's cultures, there's people, there's places, there's a history behind their wine tradition. So I literally, when I lived in San Francisco, I, every night when I would open a bottle for dinner, I'd have my encyclopedia there. And I had books, you know, like I'd have one entire book that was just this small region of the Langa region of, you know, Piedmonte, Italy. And you pull out the book and you find this maker and you read about the history and you look at the maps and you see where, where this vineyard was. There, that's it right there. Uh, so to me, it was never just about drinking the wine. It was always about learning, understanding it, trying to figure it out. I, I'm almost infinitely curious mm -hmm. as a person. There's almost no topic that doesn't get me excited to go figure something out. Uh, and wine just has all that interesting complexity to it, besides all the nuances of you know tasting it and drinking it, which I think we all know there's a lot of uh, BSing that goes on in that. But at least from the measurable properties, geography, history, culture, I always was fascinated by that. Did you find yourself? Uh, did you find certain wines appealing? Certain regions, certain types of wines, certain backgrounds, certain vineyards. Mm -hmm. Um, I've always been very partial to Spanish wine and uh, super Tuscans, like Chianti, Italy, the history, and the food, you know. You, kind of, you, start to, you start to realize after a while that the wines of a region and the temperature that that region is in have an interplay. The food, like if it's a warmer region, the warm wine stays slightly better, slightly warmer, you know, and it goes with the foods from that particular. They didn't just create these wines as a style in, in a vacuum. They evolved slowly over millennium to match their own cultural identity and their food and their temperatures and their climates. Uh, it's, it's intimately intertwined. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was always interesting, but I always gravitated to love big Portuguese, Spanish, reds, yum, yum. Um, never, never get enough of that one. What were your impressions of Oregon wine before you came here? Honestly, I don't think I had ever had much Oregon wine before I came here. Um, you know, I've come from up from California and our big sister to the south really dominates mm -hmm. the market down there. Um, I'd had a, an occasional Oregon Pinot, you know, when it snuck its way across the border. But um, 
you know, definitely, certainly since I've been here, I've always liked wines that are a little more acid driven. You know, so, you know, Sangiovese, for example, or Barbera always have appealed, but, and you get that cool climate, Oregon, Pinot Noir, that's right up my alley. Um, so, can't say that I had a great <laughs> deal of impression prior to moving here, but crash course since there. <laughs> We're going to talk about that in a second, yeah. but I'm curious, how did this become the place you ended up? Why, why here? You know, and it's a funny story. We, we were, Josh and I were thinking of going on a vacation, so we were originally thinking we might go to Yellowstone. And we just didn't plan it enough. And I said, well, you know what? Why don't we just take a little week excursion around Oregon and see if it might be a place we would want to retire in 10 years down the line? Not today. 10 years down the line. So we called the broker, scheduled some property lookouts just so we could come up and get a sense. And then this place comes along. And we're like, it has every single one of the 14 bullets that we're looking for. Never in your life will you ever find that again. Just doesn't happen. So we said, you know what? Let's go caution to the wind. We put in an offer. Turned out to be the most expensive vacation I ever took. <laughs> and we went home having put in a conditional offer on this place. So we had to sell the place in San Francisco that we had. And three months later, in a definite whirlwind of uh, <laughs> drama, uh, trying to sell a house and, and whatnot, we moved back up here. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it was quite, quite a three months, quite a three months. You mentioned the bullet points for the house. I assume the vineyard was not necessarily one of those bullet points. It was either a vineyard, the bullet points was either a vineyard or a space to plant a vineyard. Because okay. I knew that I wanted to do that. Um, other points were around water, you know, availability, climate considerations, even all the way down to no non-deciduous spiny oak trees. Because <laughs> I got so tired of stepping on the prick prickly leaves in the one we had in Santa Rosa. But... And Josh wanted a pool, so there's a pool there. So, you know, you just, it's one of those spur of the moment situations where you had a life changing event. Mm -hmm. And then you move up here and, like, okay, so now you have a vineyard, you're facing the prospect of setting up a winery, what do you do next? Mm -hmm. that, was, uh, that was fun. Well, that was my next question. So, what did you do next? Well, it was the fall when we moved up here, and the vines were one year. They were put in that year, so they were coming to the first, end of their first year. So first thing I did was get on Amazon, find uh, books on viticulture, because I knew nothing about taking care of a vine. I knew it was a plant. That's, that would be a safe, safe bet, right? Um, and I had planted and grew things. So I'm not a complete you know, idiot about growing plants, but really nothing about it. Got the viticulture book on Oregon viticulture, you know, the orange and black one, you've probably seen it, and a few other books. And we got long, cold winters here, long, wet ones. Read the book. Literally reading the chapter on pruning first, because I knew that I was going to be going out there and pruning in a few weeks, and kind of learned it as I went. You know, every time I would get to the next step in, in the cycle, you know, you pull up a little, what do you do in a vineyard <laughs> list, get to the next step and go and grab the book and read the chapter and learn as I go. Uh, occasionally drive around and look at other people's vineyards and see what they're doing this time. Of year. Oh, he, he, he's spraying something. What's that? <laughs> it's like, figure it out. Um, same thing with the wine side. Now, I will say that on the winery side, I had a little bit of a leg up because when I lived in San Francisco, being the kind of nerd slash geek that I am, I actually had a complete wine laboratory. And I would take samples and measure them in my, la my wine lab. And I read all the books on winemaking. I called it armchair winemaking because I didn't actually make any. I just read all about the techniques and all the styles and, and would run laboratory results. Uh, never did armchair vineyard management, of course, because that doesn't sound so <laughs> exciting, but definitely did wine share. So when I moved here, I knew what to do. It was 
the harder part was actually finding like, well, where's the store you can buy a wine tank and a fermenter, and where do you get barrels, and when do you order barrels, and, and who do you order them? Supply and chain, plus who are the six or so regulatory agencies who have a hand in all of this? You don't know what you don't know. If there's a seventh one, I still don't know about it, but um, figure that out. But fortunately, with the winery side, you have about three years. Mm -hmm because the vineyards were only one years old, so I had some time to figure that out, read the books, learn, uh, learn where to get stuff, and bring it online, file all the paperwork. I think that's an often under, overlooked or underrated skill, is not the technical skills of winemaking or, or viticulture and enology, but simply the purely regulatory compliance and reporting and knowing all the licensing is of that's his whole skill in itself. Yeah, a very easy, very easy to ignore detail. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, until you get slapped. So let's focus on the, the viticulture side first. You mentioned kind of learning as you go, reading. Uh, tell me, was there anything unexpected about viticulture for you? Was there anything that you, the, any part of the process that you weren't expecting or weren't expecting to be quite like it was? Um, Probably the most surprising thing was the incredible complex interplay between the whole ecosystems. And I'm still, you know, still discovering things about the interplay. I can, I can give you one example that came up this year. Um, so the first couple of years, I didn't do anything about gophers. Just left them alone, because, you know, I'm laissez-faire. <laughs> they kind of got to the point where I figured, all right, Everyone else is managing gophers. Maybe I'll, I'll manage the gophers too because they're kind of making a lot of holes. So I did that. And the next couple of years, I aggressively hunted down the gophers. Well, this year, my coyotes all left because they don't have anything to eat anymore. So guess who shows up now? The deer and the quail and the turkeys. So you see that you make a small input and this huge ecosystem gets perturbed and the whole flora and fauna changes, right? So right from the get-go, I was a no-till. I read about no-till and, and just kind of leave native landscape, leave native vegetation, interplay between the insects, uh, you know, trying to be as, as a native and natural ecosystem as possible. But that still constantly opens my eyes. You know, you make one change, you all try to alter one little thing somewhere and something else pops up. And you suddenly realize that the system exists in this beautiful balance. And your job is not to alter it, but to keep it in harmony and keep the vine healthy. And uh, just the complexity of that, soil nutrition. And I mean, soil, you think of soil like a living organism because it's, it's full of fungi and bacteria and insects and they like for no-till for example the soil is so carefully stratified there's a dry layer where nothing lives but more air and then there's a little slightly moister air that has some moisture but some air and then as you keep going down there's less and less air by the time you're 24 25 inches down there's not a lot of microorganisms right they're carefully stratified in that very narrow range where they can live. So what happens when you run over and till and turn that all over? All this life that had carefully worked out this delicate ecosystem is now all just thrown in like a tornado running over you know, a trailer park. Doesn't look good. But there it is, there's a balance, right? And you leave it alone, you work with it. And uh, sometimes the term I use is like, we as humans tend to be very arrogant in that we want to dominate nature and like the lawn is a perfect example of this completely heterogeneous monoclonal plant that is complete and an antithesis of the way nature works. And if you don't believe me, just stop taking care of your lawn and very quickly it'll be full of dandelions and false dandelions and thistles and everything else because you have to exert a constant influence in order to keep it in a way that is antithetical to nature. But same thing in the vineyard, right? Mm -hmm. So stop being, stop trying to control it and instead accept it 
the way it is and work with it. That's been my lesson. It's a lesson you have to learn, I think. Because that's where you get, honestly, that's where you get the good wine. Once that vineyard kind of gets in that harmonious balance with everything and it's getting its right amount of nutrition and it's working, then beautiful grapes come up. And I have, knock on wood, I've been having good luck with the vineyard. Uh, we have a little crew that picks the grapes for us and he services about 300 acres of which I am four. And it was the son of the owner who came by for like the 2020 picking and he looks at my grapes and he goes, wow, this is like the best looking and most fruit I've seen all year. And I'm like, nailed it. I'll take that as a compliment. So, you know, if, you, if you're just willing to open your eyes and observe and listen, you, you get that. I find that a lot of times we, our brain are, are amazing at filtering out things we don't understand. And then once you start noticing something, then a whole new dimension opens up. Like last year's thing for me was ladybugs. Now we know there are ladybugs. They're these little black and red dots that, that run around on the leaves. And we know they're good insects. We like ladybugs. But when you start to look at them closer, you realize, oh no, there's all kinds of ladybugs. Some have seven spots and some have 14 and have some 20 and some have little patterns and stripes and, and then you know, the whole summer I was running around looking at ladybugs and taking pictures and then identifying which species it was. Is it an invasive Asian species, which are still good, nothing against them, or the native species? But every time you dig into something deeper, you realize there's more to it. There's more there that normally your brain just filters out. You have, you, you're just vaguely aware of a concept until you dig in and, uh, which always makes you question, well, what else is out there that I have never noticed, right? Constant, but I told you I was infinitely curious, infinitely right? Infinitely curious. Okay. You're in the perfect spot for it. So tell me about your vineyard. You mentioned four acres mm -hmm. uh, existing when you got here, just, just coming to First Leaf. So tell me about getting to know your vineyard and what you've seen from it in the, in the years you've been here. Um, this one's four and a half acres of Pinot Noir, a couple different clones. Um, it is intriguing to me because there are differences across the different blocks, even though they're uh, not that far apart. So they all kind of have personality. There's four blocks here. They all kind of have a personality. Block one over here is a, the wines are always a little darker. It's, it's kind of a workhorse. Mm -hmm. The one over there on the other side of the driveway, as you were driving on on your left, it struggles a lot. It's very stubborn and ends up being very dark, 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 dark wine. This block here is like super productive. She can't hold her back. So it's boom, boom, boom. Much lighter style. And then there's one in the back that struggled a lot, but it's a north-facing slope. So it doesn't get as much sun and uh, produces very elegant wine. So they all have the personality. Um, Josh, my partner, accuses me of having named all of my vines. That's not really true. They all just have numbers. But uh, maybe someday they'll get a name. But yeah, you, the more and more time you spend in, in the vineyard, the more and more you become aware. I will say that I, having worked now the vineyard for the sixth cycle, I'm much more aware of the season and the cycles of growth than I've ever have been in my life. You know, it's like this, they wake up on this day, they flower on that day, they turn color on this day. And you know, bud break here is plus or minus one day from April 12th every six year that we've been here. It's kind of amazing to me that these vines, despite it might be 80 or 90 in March, we had like six degrees in the 90s in March last year. One day later than normal, it's like they didn't wake up. So they're very tuned into their solar cycle. And uh, so I try to get out there every day and walk around and just see what they're up to. But. Was, you mentioned vineyard or place to plant a vineyard was something you were looking for. Was winemaking yourself always the intention as well? Yeah, yeah. Vineyard 
and then turn it into wine. That necessarily, didn't necessarily think commercial right out of the get-go. Because um, like if I had planted a small vineyard, I might have just gone down the pathway of making a small amount of wine for myself. Um, but when we moved in here and had four and a half acres, uh, that's <clears throat> more than I can drink. Um, let's just to confess. I could put a good dent into it, but it's more than I can drink. So I just went straight, you know, barrel, barrel right on to uh, license the winery and went on with it. it uh, may have been a crazy decision, but that's maybe that's just the way I think. Well, you mentioned you you mentioned your kind of background with with the, with the lab and kind of understanding that side of things. Tell me about the first time making wine. Uh, what was the what? How did the process go for you, and mm -hmm. how did the first batch turn out? So, obviously, I would come from a very sciences and technical background, so I just kind of follow the book. Um, and to be honest, there was just just little fifty page pamphlet from MoreWine.com. Um, which to me was like the Bible the first two years because it had the calculations or sulfite and yeast treatments and all this stuff. I just followed that. I wasn't trying to be anything fancy. Um, the first year of Pinot Noir was drinkable. Uh, let's just let's leave it at drinkable. Uh, was not going to submit it for any uh, awards, but. Goal, the goal was achieved. That was when the vines were only two years old. We, we had a little test run in 2017. Um, but it got us down the pathway. And, you know, from a winemaking style, I'm very minimalist, very simple. I don't want to do too much to the wine. Um, you know, uh, gentle hand, you know, I'll, I'll tweak things here and there. But I really just want to let the wine kind of make itself go through its fermentation, put it in the barrel, let it rest, put it in the bottle. I'm not someone who does a lot of fancy tricks. How has your, you mentioned the first year, young grapes, first time making wine. How has, how has your kind of technique improved or your style improved as you've done it more often and your grapes have matured? They, wines are definitely getting better. You know, there's a big influence from the year, right? From year to year, we certainly see some changes, um, but um, eight, 18, the wines were super big and heavy, very atypical of Pinot Noir, which of course left me the mystery, like did I do something wrong or was it just a weird year? Um, in retrospect, I think it was just a weird year because we'd been doing pretty much the same thing year after year. Um, I, as a wine, so to answer the question, as a wine drinker, I have certain things that I like in a wine. I do not like oak. Too much oak, ick, ick, ick. It's not my thing. Um, I like wines with a little more acidity. You know, they should be balanced, but lean on maybe on the acid-driven side. So as a winemaker, that's what I make. I try to make a wine that I like. So I pick a little earlier than most people do. Uh, I manage the canopy to make sure that we get, uh, when I say earlier, I pick earlier in the, in the sugar level, lower sugar level, mm -hmm. but try to manage the canopy so that I have the hang time, but not the sugar. And then neutral oak for aging. Although last year in 2021, I did experiment with some oak chips, put in some oak chips in the fermenter for the 10 days during fermentation, just to like a little foray into a hint of oak uh, on one of the four wines. But, and it came out really yummy, I will confess. But <laughs> so, you know, maybe my, my anti-oak stance will shift a little with time, but uh, mm -hmm. for right now, that, that's kind of my style. And we, we make a rosé. Everything I do, I make a rosé and then I make a a Pinot Noir, so it's a Sagne technique, so a bigger, darker red and a rosé out of the same thing. And then I actually bottle those. So it's kind of a neat thing where you actually can have the rosé and the red that are the exact same vats. So a lot of what I do, I don't blend. I just bottle the, the uh, single block, single clone, 
just, I like to taste it. And I even have wines, I have to kind of label experimental because I'd be asking some questions. So I'd do something one way and I'd do something and make the same wine another way. And then at the end, I was like, well, these are both good. I'm just gonna bottle it. And I literally called it block one and block one experimental <laughs> because that's the kind of nerd geek that I am. And I'm like, I don't spend any money on marketing names, obviously, but, um, but those, my own personal taste are what's driving, you know, the winemaking styles. And they haven't changed too much from year to year other than, you know, just a little tweak here and there, like experiment with oak on, on a wine, but I'm gonna stick with what I do. That's honestly, it's one of the challenges of winemaking is that your, your cycle of experimentation is an entire year and your results may not come back for two years. So it moves pretty slow. If, you, if you're gonna tweak your formula, it might be a couple of years before you know if it was a bad formula or a good formula. Uh, so as a result, kind of kind of conservative, don't move too fast in, in any one direction because you don't know where your results are going to be. Mm. And that's, that's true for anybody in the business because it's just so slow. You mentioned your, your obviously scientific data-driven background, uh, but also a pretty fairly minimalist hands-off winemaking style. I'm curious if that's hard for you to, to not try to over-manipulate the wine each year. Yeah. Um, no, it, it, it's, I'm a really lazy winemaker. You know, it's, it's funny. If you'd asked me in San Francisco, would you enjoy the vineyard work and, and, and you know, or you hate the vineyard work and love, love the winery work was what I would have thought. And I get up here, it turns out, it's like, I really like being out in the field. And I, I force myself into the winery when I have to to get some work done. And it's like, oh yeah, I better get over there and rack that oh, next week, maybe. But really, it's just, you go in and check it to make sure that it's, you know, stable, but uh, just kind of heaps it hand, hands off in the technical range. I will say, though, the thing that surprised me is in the first year, I was really gung-ho with doing, you know, running a titration on the acidity, running out and grabbing berries and measuring the sugar meticulously multiple times. And by about the fourth year, I just go out and go, yeah, that tastes about right. And you just skip all the science and just trust your own judgment. And uh, our, own, our own senses of taste and smell are, are very sophisticated equipment. If you were to buy a piece of equipment that could do that, it would cost millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. But it surprised me how quickly you build that sense of, of the judgment. And, in, and literally last year, I didn't even do a titration. I just never even bothered to measure the tea. I didn't care what it was because it tasted right, mm -hmm. and that's what I'm going to go by. Mm -hmm. And then the lab will finally do it when I submit it for, for analysis before labeling. So speaking of, of labeling, tell me about naming uh, the, everything, I guess. Casa S. <laughs> Where does the Casa S come, name come from? So the name, it's, um, I don't like, sort of tacky name. I would never name something after myself. Fine for those people who do that, but no, not for me. And I told Josh when we were coming over here to buy it, it's like, the place will tell us the name. And we got here and there was this really interesting script S on the gate, which is still there, which you saw probably coming in. Uh, and we really liked the font. So we just took the S. And we call it Casa because the architecture, as you kind of see, is very Mediterranean. Uh, so it suggested sort of a Spanish word, so Casa S. Turns out to be great marketing because any S word, and there are thousands of them in English, becomes my marketing word. So like if you look at my Facebook posts, everything is S is for science or soil or sugar or S is for spotlight. Everything, every social media post, I put an S word in there and I talk about it. And I have no problem coming up with an S word to say whatever I want to say, because I have a whole list of S words in my in a Google Doc. But it's just kind of cool, right? It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. Obviously, it was the name of the previous family, last name. But to us, it's just a random thing. It means nothing. 
And naming of the wines literally is just named for the blocks, except for we do have a cuvee named for the dog, Maximus, and a rosé named for Victoria, the cat. And uh, that's Victoria sleeping over there. She's very unenthusiastic yeah, about this interview. Most, she was born here, so we had to put up with her. She was born under the wood box up behind the house, and we just we weren't looking for a cat, but she became the winery cat. Moved in, been here ever since. And what about the rest of the, the business beyond the winemaking and the viticulture here? What else is, what else is under the Casa S umbrella? This is a B&B. Uh, my partner, Josh, who's, I think, giving Max a bath at the moment, runs the bed and breakfast. Um, so I'm, I'm the vine and wine guy, as we, as we say. I, I'm outdoors, you're taking care of that. He runs the bed and breakfast. Um, I, I just have to do the books. That's my that's my B and B contribution. So with the wine, uh, obviously you 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 had the kind of background in in making it. You were excited to make it. You were excited to grow it. Tell me about selling it. I'm curious. About, <laughs> once you have wine in bottle, what, what how did you find uh, to get rid of it? Uh, yeah, well, we are still finding to get rid of it. The sales are pretty slow. We officially opened the tasting room last year in the summer. And of course, we've been doing this all through COVID. Um, and so I'm still kind of working on the sales channel. And I was kind of bring the sales numbers up and up and up. Partly, as I say, I'm really motivated by this because I have literally run out of spaces in the house that I can store wine. Um, so we do have a tasting room. Obviously, a lot of B&B guests come through, so we get a lot of word of mouth. We sell some wine that way, but right now, that's the biggest, and I actually think it's probably my toughest challenge because that's not my wheelhouse. That's not a technical science and engineering problem. That's a very touchy-feely human thing, uh, and I'm not touchy-feely human. I'm more of a you know, computer, robotic thing. Um, so taking care of the vines, taking care of the wine, straightforward. Figuring out how to sell it, that's my next challenge. Come back in two, three years, ask me how I did it, how I'm doing on that, and I'll, I'll tell you. But I was working on that this morning. So. You mentioned the tasting room. Tell me about what, uh, with the tasting room, what's the kind of approach you want to take there, and, and how has it worked so far? So it's so far, everyone who's going through really, really likes it. Um, our little tasting room's over there in our winery right in the facility. Um, we're not selling the view. We're not selling the gorgeous, uh, you know, multi-million dollar tasting room. It's just very simple. But we focus on is uh, I only take one group at a time. So it's always a one-on-one -on -one experience with me. And it's very education focused. So we're going to start by looking at some maps. We look at geography. We think about why we grow Pinot in the Willamette Valley. Look at the influence of climatology and, and uh, you know, geography and so forth. Uh, we go into the winery. We do barrel tastings. We talk about winemaking. We go out in the vineyard. We look at the vines. Why do we plant them the way we do? How do we train them? How do we manage them? How do we set the yield? I actually get into all that with people while they're sipping wine. Uh, but it's very hands-on, kind of a get people to know and more understand about the whole process. Um, been through the spiel quite a few times, obviously, um, but it's fun. People seem to really enjoy it because it's a very different experience. Uh, you're not just here to sip wine and you get very interactive. And you're interacting with the people who actually do the work. Uh, I usually start off with a joke that I'm, I'm the owner slash winemaker slash tractor maintenance person and dishwasher because when you're a small business, you have to wear all the hats. But that means if you ask a question, you're, you're getting the answer from the person who most likely did it versus you know, it may be an employee in a tasting room who's not as connected. So, that's the experience we focus on, very small and very intimate. Yeah, for people who go through that with you, what are the sort of, you mentioned and why you want to be more intimate with the experience. If they take a couple of things away from interacting with you, mm -hmm. what would you hope they take away? Well, a better appreciation for the product, right? Because a lot of people think it's just, you know, 
you know, the vines just take grow all by themselves and then magically the wine gets into the bottle and it's like you know, there's quite a few steps in between and quite a bit of work um, so they get a better appreciation for the product but also an appreciation of how you know how to relate to the wine you know, it's like your own sensory evaluation you know I usually teach people how to assess how much tannin is the wine by seeing how rough your tongue gets and we take them through these things that they may have never been had any training on. That way, they, uh, I like to say they get armed with more dangerous questions for the next winery. I like that. You mentioned, uh, obviously, the pandemic coming in the middle of all of this. So tell me, tell me about the year 2020 for ah, you yeah. here and for the multiple businesses uh, and sort of the, the effects of the year and, and the, the, the mm -hmm. changes you had to make. So. You know, in terms of the winery and the vines, almost nothing because it was a one-man operation anyway, so I could definitely social distance from myself out in the field. Uh, no big problem there. So we didn't really have anything we had to do. And the B&B, &B, in, the, in the first couple of, in the spring really, there was a complete stop right, for a couple of months. Business, everyone canceled. But by May of 2020, people knew enough about what this COVID was to they, they set their fear level. And then we were actually busier than ever. Just by end of May, it just poured on because everyone was stir crazy. They just had to get out. And we're a very small place. So we only have two rooms. If you come with your friends, it's just going to be the two of you. And a lot of people who had been here before knew that. Mm -hmm. So we were full steam through the whole thing. Um, uh, slow sales on, on the winery side meant that I could do things like build a restroom and finish the tasting room and bring it all online and get it ready to go for like this year. Mm -hmm. um, but you'd be surprised how once people had a better sense of where COVID was going, they adjusted their, mm -hmm. their fear level. Yeah. It's, been, it's been crazy. People coming and going all the time. Yeah, we have heard that from people who've had spaces for people who, if you didn't have to fly and you could just drive to a place and stay there, it was very, you were very popular all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, <laughs> especially Portland, Seattle, Bend, uh, get a lot, a lot of guests from relative short drivable distances. What about the harvest of 2020? You, you talked earlier about kind of how you felt like you, you, you got comments that your, your grapes were doing very well that year. Uh, how did you kind of manage the smoke and what were the, Change you had to make, if all. So, fortunately, we are at the ground floor here. It's pretty much about 100 feet above sea level. Um, and there were actually three struggles in the year 2020. If you look at Willamette Valley, there was cool spring. We didn't set a lot of fruit. We had the hail during the flowers and then the smoke. We escaped all of that because the valley floor was a little bit warmer. So we set plenty of fruit. We had a lot of canopy by the time the hail came canopy protected the, the leaves, the clusters were protected by the leaves. And then the smoke generally stayed higher. We had a little bit of smoke, but not enough for the vines to pick up any significant amount of smoke. And we actually doubled our yield, which for me is this, this sort of frustration because it's the year that everyone's writing off mentally and not expecting that I'm sitting on a huge closet of uh, 500 cases of wine. We doubled our production in 2020. Mm -hmm. We had been running about 250 cases a year, and we went up to around 500 cases. Um, so it was uh, almost a textbook year for me, and I almost feel a little guilty, but not, not too much. So in the, in the evolution of the wine brand, tell me so far, what are the biggest sort of accomplishments you've seen in, 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 under the wine label? And what are you hoping are the next kind of milestones for you? Uh, yeah, next milestones. The biggest accomplishments so far, we've had a couple of wines that I think are really quite nice. Um, we were recently just up at the Queer Wine Fest at Remy Wines. And so we participated in that. And I brought the Max Cuvée and the Victoria Rosé, which is a sparkling rosé. It was extremely popular because it was a hot day. But I also got, uh, um, there was a lady there who works at the International Pinot Noir Competition. 
and then it's encouraging me to submit that wine next year. So she thinks she wants to see if we can get it in there. So that was a nice little, a nice little compliment. The, the next goal really is enter the wine in a lot of competitions, put the wine in front of a lot of reviewers, <coughs> generate some, some more traffic, right? <coughs> That's our next goal, really just increase the awareness of the brand. Right? That's just, like I said, I'm not, I'm not a sales guru, but I know the next goal, obviously, is to get more people to know about the wine and start, start to sell it. <clears throat> Do you have an eventual goal in mind for how much wine you'll make or trying something outside yeah. of your own vineyard? I want to keep it um, small. It's hoping to somewhere around, you know, 400 cases, something like that, even back, a bit back from where we are. <clears throat> The, um, the vines were pretty young, so holding them back is hard when they're young because they, if, if you don't give them enough fruit to produce, then they'll go pretty much canopy, and then the whole thing just kind of gets out of balance. So we had to let it rise a little bit, especially in 2021 with all that heat. But now that they're maturing, I want to see, like this year, <clears throat> if we can bring it back to around 300, 350, 400 cases. Focus will be on quality, not on quantity, keeping it a small manageable experience because <clears throat> I don't have a very big facility I can't can't go too big so you mentioned not having a lot of familiarity with with Oregon wine before coming here so I'm curious your first impressions of the wine and of the wine making community here uh, and what are the changes you've seen in the time you've been here well I have seen some changes on the viticultural side uh, I don't know if that I have enough you know, personal data on, on the actual wine side. I think there's a pretty interesting diversity here. Like <clears throat> one of the things I tried to do early on is certainly work in, in the B&B &B acting as sort of a guide to people staying here would be to figure out what wines they liked and then try to help them find wineries that might be that style. But it's really fascinating what such a dynamic range because with Piccoli with Pinot, you can go for a very light, elegant style or like, you know, you might find a so-called blosser or something to this incredibly heavy side that you might find it like an archery summit, a big, very structured, dark, powerful wine and everything in between. So there's a huge range here. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that may be the strength. Uh, I often explain it to people as Oregon's a lot younger. We don't have hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition. We have a, definitely a maverick mindset. Oregon's pretty strong, independent, right? So people are willing to experiment and try their own thing. And, you know, the eight or 900 wineries that we have, <laughs> tons of small ones, lots of variety. I think that's great. The one thing I have seen change on the viticultural side, I've seen a lot of people moving towards uh, no-till, right? And leaving, uh, leaving, crop, leaving ground cover year-round. Uh, not tilling it in, not spraying, getting away from using pesticides. So I certainly see a movement towards, you know, an awareness of finding that harmonious balance within within the vineyard. Because that's a short time, but you you drive around and you see a lot of changes. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a good thing for Oregon. What about what comes next for the state's industry? Is there uh, anything you're looking forward to coming up or anything you're predicting that you're going to see next? Yeah, well, you know, we've been, we've been getting a lot of really, as a, as a region, we've been getting a lot of positive press. I think if it was the New York Post or one of them said that Willamette Valley was the, the hottest wine region in the world right now. Um, so I, th I think certainly the next thing is continued to rise in... Uh, in stature around the world. Maybe we can uh, repeat the great uh, Napa Bordeaux and have a better uh, Burgundy or Oregon uh, trial. Mm -hmm. um, but as the market share, you know, will continue to rise and the quality is rising. Mm -hmm. Oregon, uh, Oregon wine has had a relatively high quality for a pretty good length of time. So I, th I think it's an exciting uh, region to be a part of. Uh, that was on my mind, obviously, when I moved up here. You know, it's like if you're if you're strategically looking to buy into a place, it's it's a good idea to buy into it bef before it zooms up into the stratosphere in price. Uh, but it could certainly see signs even six years ago that this area was 
getting a lot of attention. And today it's, you know, way up there. So I think it's very exciting to be, to be a part of that. I, I sometimes use the phrase riding on the coattails, right? Because we're a small winery. We're riding on the coattails of all the bigger ones with, who are well known. And they're pulling us along for the ride. You know? Let's hope it's a fun ride. Anything else, because uh, you look ahead for yourself in the future, either from a wine perspective or otherwise, anything else you're looking ahead to? Um, there, there's always an option for some expansion. Um, there's an, a neighboring piece of property here that we have our eye on that uh, may come up for sale in a few years. So that's something that uh, if that comes to play, then um, we could expand another vineyard over there as well as potentially build an actual larger winery slash tasting room facility because the facility I operate in is the actual winery side is only about 450 square feet. It's a garage size. And I still managed to produce, you know, 740 cases out of there this year. Uh, but it's a little bit of a dance. So every time you do something, you have to move everything around, make space, get this thing here, move that over here. But, you know, it works. Keep it small, keep it simple. But if the brand grows, you know, because at, at this point, it's, I call it an overpriced hobby. Uh, but when it actually is profitably paying for itself as a brand, then I will be willing more to invest in, you know, say, constructing a larger facility. Uh, but until that point, I want to keep it small, grow it slow. That's part of the reason I also continue to work so that I have a long runway, right? Continue to work in the high tech industry so that I don't have to worry about money. I'm not forced to make decisions about the wine based on economic decisions. I can continue with it at the small, slow scale until it blossoms into whatever it wants to be mm -hmm. or withers away and dies. But whatever the case, uh, we will accept its fate. Mm -hmm. But I, if I were forced financially to make quicker decisions, that would be a lot less comfortable position. So I just want to keep it slow. All right. That's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that you'd like to cover? Not that I can think of. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time and for your hospitality here today. Uh, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. All right. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.